0: Hello creeps, I'll be your ghost, I mean host, as we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Oh, I've had such a day like you wouldn't believe I, I was I was out having the most erotic, but also kind of depressing beachside romp ever. And then I was simultaneously attacked by the British government for their secret radio control plane program and giant crabs. How, how are you doing today, John?
1: Um, you know what? I'm OK. Uh, me, <laughs> me and some of the other terribly clever chaps who all smoke pipes decided to to book a little holiday home for the week. Try and get away from it all, and um, well, it turns out that um, some sort of hellhound is is out there, but I'm
0: sure it'll be fine. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I really hope you get the time to finish writing "Sexy Confessions of 2003's Pipe Smoking Championship." Uh, it's going to be my follow
1: up to "Sexy Confessions of a Podcaster," um, oh. which I think I think will do quite well.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So "Sexy Confessions of a Gamer" is also going to be incredibly successful. Um, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you do you do whatever you have to to pay the bills. You do whatever you have good, to. Got to keep the lights on somehow. And today we're keeping the lights on with a new episode of Horror Vanguard. I'm one of your co ghosts Ashley Darrow, joined as always by the one, the only John, aka at the Lit Creek Guy. How's it going, John? I already asked that. I have things changed now that you're out of you're out of pipe smoking character.
1: I am I am so excited that we get to do this show today. We are in. For a real treat. Um, This one's so fucked. It's so great. (laughs) uh, So long-time listeners to the show might be aware that um, my dear friend and co-host has a unique taste in horror movies. Um, That's true. We call these ash films on the show. uh, Things that just have ash energy. And I'm sure lots of you have been thinking, you know what? I don't really like film. I'm not really into film. What I really want is a series of novels which have Ash energy. And I am so happy that we get to introduce you to perhaps the greatest practitioner of Ash vibes in all of horror history.
0: This, it is so shocking to me that I did not know the existence of this book franchise until you mentioned it to me. It has been one of the most incredible literary revelations of my lifetime.
1: So we are we are starting. We're starting off today's episode, which is going to be a very special kind of a two-part episode, as it were. Uh, we're starting off with the introduction to something. We are we we are starting off talking about perhaps the best twentieth-century uh, novel cycle of all time. Guy N. Smith's magnum opus, The Crab Saga. Um, But before before we kind of dive in, we have to answer a very important question. Ash, who is Guy N. Smith?
0: This is the question of our lifetime. I I really do firmly believe it because this guy... This this guy is a prolific author, a pipe-smoking champion, and responsible for murdering cats in the United Kingdom. There's a lot for us to get into here. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is going this is so good. Listeners listeners, we just spent like a half hour just, just reading his book titles and laughing. This is we're in we're in for a treat today.
1: We are talking about the man known as the great scribbler, uh published, I think literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of books um across almost every genre, but was most well known for over I think around 70 or 80 horror novels, published mostly in the seventies and eighties. Well, I, where should we begin?
0: Oh, uh, you know, like a quick, quick introduction. Guy Smith um, is English, born, born in the UK, uh, starts his career off wanting to be a writer. Right. And um, so I have his book here, Writing Horror Fiction, his kind of guide to his craft. And, and he outlines his early days as like once he realized he wanted to be a writer, he intentionally picked up jobs that had a lot of downtime where he could write. You know, and then he got his first publication contract and then he hustled. He was proto Grindset. He was, uh, yeah, you know, he was all about.
1: It's called Time Theft and it's amazing.
0: Yeah. He, he is not only he, he's a complicated political character because not only is he advocating for time theft, but he also advocates for for like the 70s equivalent of Grindset. Mm-hmm. Um and, and yeah, like like John was saying, like um, so the publication date for his on or his writing horror fiction book, uh, was 1996. And in this book, he he states multiple times that he had forgotten how many books he had already written, but it must be over 200 by that point. And looking at his bibliography, that's probably right.
1: So, what do you think about his um his horror writing? His advice on horror writing?
0: So, so this I I think uh is is really 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 interesting um because the book is weird and everything about guyon smith is incredibly weird there's a lot of like decent advice here about writing especially if you're looking to like make money and especially if you're looking to make money in the 70s to mid 90s um, it's really tight information on, like, oh, yeah, you got to pick your characters, you know, you got to do your research, you got to decide what subgenre you're going to be in. Um, and then, then he, he goes on a little rant about political correctness. And then we're back to the races about managing your contracts with different publishers. Uh, an interesting character, to say the least.
1: Um,
0: y- yes, yes. I. <laughs> I, I,
1: I, I Honestly, everything everything that we're we're going to talk about sounds like we've just made it up. But I promise, all of this is true. All of this, this is isn't really a bit. happening.
0: He's not a troll, um, but he's real.
1: <laughs> he he was he was a he was a vociferous uh, publisher. So um, he published a whole range of different kinds of fiction. Uh, he was also well known for his nonfiction as well. Because if there is one thing. The guy N. Smith loved more than writing about monsters crawling out of the earth or the sea or the night sky to attack extremely attractive ladies. Um, What he really loved writing about was shooting
0: animals. Oh, this guy loved killing animals with guns. It was probably his favorite thing. Why don't, why don't you wouldn't you like help our audience get an understanding of how much this guy loved to kill animals with guns by reading a few of his book titles to us uh
1: <laughs> yes I, I I'm gonna have to uh, we have uh gamekeeping and shooting for amateurs
0: practical okay. uh
1: hill shooting and upland gaming cool okay very normal. animal animals of the countryside presumably the missing subtitle here is and how to shoot them <laughs> the the rough shooters handbook okay fair enough uh and uh, my my favorite one is uh shooting big cats in britain
0: <laughs> now now for our listeners who maybe have never had the pleasure of of, of traveling uh, uh to britain and it's it's beautiful islands uh uh, how many how many lar- large cats, mountain lions, cougars, regular lions, tigers? I- I'm assuming they must be all over the place, right? Uh, one can only presume it's sort of like feral hogs in America.
1: <laughs> you know, th- 30 to 50 feral hogs being like a, a really commonplace thing um, in the, in the UK, in the more rural parts of England, especially uh,
0: cougars, cougars are a big problem. Yeah, yeah. There's no way Guyon Smith was was walking around killing house cats. I, I refuse to believe it.
1: <laughs> um, uh, just uh, just a few more details about Guyon Smith. Um, he loved pipe smoking, pipe smoking and tobacco in all of its forms. He was a big
0: fan of. Um, but he. We're talking it, about 2003's British pipe smoking champion. Uh, he took it a step further, though. He took it a step further and was actually.
1: Uh, pro-smoking he was a pro-smoking advocate
0: yeah and i think it's important to highlight that it wasn't just in favor of smoking but actively doing advocacy for more people to start smoking <laughs> this this guy is like it's like a bunch of monty python sketches came to life
1: uh, in the mid-1970s he was selected to uh, write novelizations of several Disney films, uh, including Song of the South. Um, oh, it, dear. It, everything about, about him is amazing.
0: This, he, he, the, the hits don't stop coming with with, with Guyan Smith. He was just like, he woke up every morning, looked, looked himself in the mirror and said, I'm going to create discourse for 2020s podcasters. And he got hard at work.
1: Uh, the man the man, put in the hours. I think that's all we
0: can say. You know, um, I... I, I uh, we I have, just, of course... I, oh, go on, go on.
1: We have, of course, skipped over um, a, a colossal part of his work, which is um, spending, spending a lot of time being very, very horny on Maine, um, writing, honestly, frankly, huge amounts of softcore pornography...
0: Yes, yes. I was actually about to say that I had misspoke there. And, and instead of saying uh, got hard at work or I mean, like he did. <laughs> he wrote a lot of softcore pornography and, it, and it's all very formulaic. It's all under the shape of like confessions of a insert career here, confessions of a crossing guard, confessions of a window cleaner. All of these are written under women's pen names, right? These are meant to be texts written from the POV of the ladies. And uh, if you just just read Read Night of the Crabs and you'll you'll appreciate Guyan Smith's approach to sex. Uh it's not what we would call uh progressive. Um I in but- fact you might actually call it regressive.
1: <laughs> uh, I And kind of feeds into the overall deeply weird politics of a lot of guy
0: Smith's work. Deeply, deeply weird. And especially like, so in in writing horror fiction by guy Smith, he talks a lot about writing sex and sex scenes and nudity and sexuality. Um, It is no longer surprising to me why he talks a lot about that. Um, But but a lot of his focus is, he, he says stuff, he has advice that I wish he would have taken, which is you want to be subtle about it. You know, in, in order to erotically engage your reader, you want to you want to leave you want to leave a lot to the imagination. Guide them, but don't push them into things. And I'm like, I really wish you would have done that.
1: <laughs> I mean, it would have helped. It would have it would have been been a good thing. Um, now, you you did sort of mention this briefly. Um, his book, Writing Horror Fiction, and there is a section we should probably talk about here um, from that book, which. Is yes. would, would you mind sharing Guy N Smith's opinions on political correctness?
0: So this is from th- this is from his uh, 1996 on writing horror or writing horror fiction on writing horror is a different book um, and, and, and like he's essentially complaining about what today he if he if he was alive writing this today he would be calling it woke cancel culture. Um, this is the 90s version of that. And I think it's it's interesting to kind of explore what's going on here, because one, it's deeply fucking reactionary. Right. Like uh, so. So he specifically outlines two instances that he's complaining about. Um, I once had to change this. I'm quoting Gahan Smith here. I once had to change the sex of a dog in one of my children's books simply to maintain, quote, a balance of the sexes, end quote. Um, And like, so I think. I think we on the left can kind of pick this apart and, and do a little analysis of, of something here. And I think part of it is he, he's he's in, in one, one sense being incredibly reactionary, but he's also reacting to a liberal approach to, quote unquote, identity politics, a, a non-intersectional way of looking at identity that's divorced from any intersection and class. Um, yes, uh, which is very weird, especially when you consider that he's talking about
1: a series of like um animal dramas that he wrote for children
0: <laughs> right right and like he he ends that section by saying like hey you got to do what you got to do to get published so like he is so short of, of an actual like intersectional analysis that connects class to identity right and, and like really really elevates himself to, to something different but no he's just kind of like He's the most American Brit I've ever heard of.
1: Well, I mean, I can't I can't say I expected um, author of Night of the Crabs and its 12 sequels to have an intersectional approach to the contested question of representational identity politics in uh, small press and popular publishing. But I, <laughs> I'm not surprised that this is what he says. Um, but I, I suppose it actually brings up a kind of a kind of bigger point which is that smith is clearly in the tradition the finest tradition
0: of gothic publishing generally right yeah absolutely right and and i just really wanted to bring this up because like so there's a great book by uh franz potter that's gothic chapbooks blue books and shilling shockers and it looks at really like the early history of the gothic as a popular press and when i say popular here i i mean like for the masses, right? Like, like not for the upper class, the the upper middle class and the rich who used to have the, the dominant access to literary technology. And I think it's important to to kind of like situate Guyan Smith in a longer history, right? To see him connected to something that really got got off the ground in the eighteen hundreds and continues to this day. I mean, like, but like the shape of the popular press has obviously shifted entirely. Right. We're, we're a digital economy. Print books are rarer than ever. Um, but it, it does kind of put him into a different kind of historic and political context. Right. The, the these writers that had to churn out titles quickly in order to make money. None of these people are Stephen King. Right. Like Guy and Smith had no official movie adaptations, although he did claim one movie was an adaptation, even though he's not credited. And like, so so his career never never takes off in the way that like King and Anne Rice and a lot of other writers would. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to point out that there is like, he's more the norm, right? He's more the norm of what, yeah. what our image of what it means to be a writer is than someone who just writes one kind of thing and has an agent who sells it. And maybe there's a movie or a TV show and there's like, Historically speaking, actually, arguably from from the late 18th century, where like Grub Street in England, mm. in in London started to emerge and you started to have people like uh, Defoe and uh, Samuel Richardson, people who would make their living by the pen. You would write everything and you would write for whoever paid you. So it was it, there, there is absolutely a longer tradition here that's bound up in things like the propagation of technology, uh, the emergence of literacy as a political form, uh, and all of those questions. And you start, if you look at the work of Guy and Smith, and, and so many of the people who've been like professional scribblers, you get to see this really interesting insight into the into the kind of cultural imagination and the aesthetic tastes of a huge swathe of society. Um, Guy and Smith sold a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I like to say that he was the most popular novelist in Poland during the 70s and 80s. Uh, Sweet. Selling like a hundred thousand copies of a book at a time.
0: Uh, is, so- is that much in the same way that we're the 45th most popular film and television podcast in Taiwan? I mean, I think so. I think so. So you gotta you gotta take what you can get. Yeah, and I think I think it is important to give the to, to return historical materialism to Kaihan Smith. <laughs> and like but yeah, I think it is important to look at these broader contexts, right? Because we, we often have this kind of like over-focus on the Stephen Kings of the world, right? Uh, also the Steven Spielbergs of the world in terms of cinema, right? We, we tend to put a lot of our effort into looking at the biggest names that have the most economic power behind them, right? One of the reasons that Stephen King is a household name is because companies can make a lot of money off of Stephen King continuing to be a household name, remaining a household name. It, from from the perspective of publishers and now movie studios, it makes more sense to keep investing in Stephen King the brand than it does to risk some new young author coming up as the next Stephen King in quotes, um, unless we're talking about Stephen King's son, who's kind of coming up as the next Stephen King, but that's again a safer bet in terms of business. And things get just like you were saying, like things get really politically interesting. When we start to look at these like, quote unquote, lowbrow authors, right? These people writing for the masses and popular fiction who worked every day in their life writing, some of them loved their craft. Others like Sarah Wilkinson kind of hated what they were doing. And to them, it was just a job. No different than like someone being a bank clerk might think about what they do. And it really like, you know, like the, the writing in here is not Edgar Allan Poe. You know, like I, I compared him to like a a very budget Bram Stoker earlier. Uh, yeah,
1: it's it is functional. Let's say that it's functional.
0: But like, nevertheless, like I think there there are really important conversations that we can use these texts as vehicles for.
1: Yes, I think that's true, and that that brings us to perhaps what Guy N Smith is most well known for, um, which is. Crabs. <laughs> uh, I am, of course, talking about the Crab series, a series of 12 novels that stretches from 1976's Night of the Crabs all the way up to The Charnel Caves, a Crabs novel published in 2019, not including uh, about, I think it's about uh, eight to ten Crabs short stories, which are scattered throughout various anthologies and chat book collections that guy and smith published um and I, I i want to start off as we get into the discourse of this novel by by thinking about it in terms of the great novel cycles so it one of the foundational forms of literature is is, is it is the epic is the
0: epic novel cycle damn it. no please don't please keep going and so (laughs) don't 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 mind me you you just hit me with like the the theoretical equivalent of a crab mallet
1: (laughs) so so here's here's the thing given that it stretches across so much time it has a story that literally involves the cycles the cycles of the moon the tides the constant uh, emergence of life from the sea and the retreat back into the water do you think it's fair to argue that Guy N. Smith produced the pulp novel cycle epic of the 20th century.
0: I I think it's entirely fair to put him in the running for it. I, I, I think you might even be correct w- with this analysis. And I did not expect you you to drop an epic four-hour... Uh, George Lucas was actually using the epic ring cycle tradition when he made his prequel movies argumentation, but you know what? You You did it. Um, Like this, this I think is really important, too, because it changes the shape of what Night of the Crabs is on so many levels, you know, and and again, to go back to my earlier kind of argumentation here, a lot of our focus in literature analysis, right, literary criticism, film analysis, film criticism, etc. and so forth is is on like artistic texts that are uh, that present themselves as being artistically self-contained or they're old enough to be divorced from a lot of their temporal coordinates. You know, uh, to Dr- Dracula again. Like a lot of times when we talk about Dracula, we we stop analyzing it in a historical context. You know, we we stop recognizing that it was responding to a moment. Um N- Night of the Crabs is very much in a moment <laughs> it's very much responding to the world around it um but but i think the the fact that it it is cyclical it, it is connected to the tide and the moon and the ocean there's something cosmic about about night of the crabs right like this almost feels like th- this is bordering on on automatic writing this, this is a this is a sacred text this is an oracle to which we can open and find horrible truths about our world. I mean,
1: this is the thing. He is he's he's putting into words what so many people fear but are not prepared to express. Um, <laughs> You're so right. Oh, oh so, my god! So the the upshot of Nine of the Crabs is it's set in uh, Gwynedd uh, in Northwest Wales, um, where from the sea gigantic crabs emerge with a taste for human flesh. Um,
0: Perfect. No, no notes. No notes. <laughs> publish it. And then publish 11 novels.
1: <laughs> yeah, was- and
0: then publish 11 novels, half a dozen short stories. And while you're at it, uh, novelize some Disney books and give me like 12 different pornos by noon. <laughs> God, now- you know, every, every time I hear about these, like, like as, as someone who does a lot of ghost writing, Like, I hear about this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, it it do be like that. (laughs) It it do be
1: like that. It do be like that. Um, Now, one of the elements of this book, which I think probably takes a lot of people by surprise, you hear the title Night of the Crabs. You're expecting killer crabs.
0: That's what you're expecting. But we're about to take a hard left turn here, folks. In Guyon Smith tradition, I need a cigarette.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because... um, what is a big feature of the of, a, of the opening, I, I would argue, the opening third of the novel um, and has huge ramifications for the rest of the novel is a secret military base with um, a top-secret British military drone
0: program? Now, now, this is like you encounter this before you encounter the crabs um, in Night of the Crabs. This isn't Night of the Secret Early Drone Project, Um and when I hit this part of the book, my, my pupils shot open. I began to froth at the mouth and levitate. And I think I texted you unintelligible frenzied garbage because it, it, it is so out of left field. Just, just completely unexpected. But I think that is the magic of Night of the Crabs, that there's so much in this book that that there's just there's just no way you saw this coming. There's no one on Earth would have been like, Night of the crabs, yeah. You know, I think that one's gonna have a secret British drone project in it.
1: And and here's the thing, this was this is so weirdly prophetic for a novel that was written in the
0: mid 70s. Um It's so like like and, and to be clear, like it's it's not a secret drone program in the sense that we would think of that today. It is a radio controlled, uh pilotless airplane project, right? So the the, those the, essentially are the forerunner. But, yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's the forerunner of drones, uh, and, and you're totally right. They're, they're they're drones, but but it has that Robocop energy to it, where it's like it's it's not horrifying that our characters are up against that as much as it's horrific that we're currently still living through it. It's just gotten worse.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and so our hero of the novel is uh, in typical Guy N. Smith. Uh, style uh, a man, a handsome fellow, a handsome chap, in his mid forties, who wears sensible sweaters and smokes a pipe, uh, and is <laughs> and is irresistibly attractive to the younger women that he ends up uh, wandering around this portion of North Wales with. Uh, and whilst he's there to try and work out what's happened to, a, I think, a nephew who goes missing at the beginning of the novel, yep. he he gets. He gets taken to basically an MI6 black site. <laughs> he just gets he just gets <laughs> snatched up by the army. Um and it's it's amazing. And he only manages to get out of it because he's a world-renowned biologist. And so he knows somebody he knows someone. He knows somebody at the home office or in the military. Yeah, yeah, he
0: knows <laughs> he knows somebody with a knighthood that, that can talk him out of this like he he's 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 in with the monarchy he's a world renowned scientist even, even he's so badass that even if MI6 wanted to detain him forever they couldn't like like we what we what we have here is i i think a kind of sad and lethargic James Bond that is that is so true who's who smokes a pipe um there's also so so, so our um so our, our protagonist here, let me oh god, uh Cliff. Cliff is his name. I think it's Cliff Davenport. Yes, yes, Cliff. Yeah, Cl- Cliff Clifford Davenport is the name of our protagonist. Um and he he's a researcher, right? But but it, the, the novel goes out of the way to remind us that he's overworked and he's kind of tired. You know? And so there's something about this book where like OK, it's, it's kind of like this weird adventure of like an overworked academic. And there's something weirdly relatable about a lot of what's going on inside of Night of the Crabs by Guy and Smith.
1: Yeah, who can, who can, who, who, all of my, all my fellow burnout academics, who can relate?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how many of us have tried to take a vacation on in a beautiful seaside town in Wales only to be beset I- both by MI6 and giant crabs? Uh, you know, work. You, you can't just leave work at home, can you? You Can't just leave work at home. No, never. <laughs>
1: uh, but you said this. You said you said the magic word. You said the word monarchy. Um, in in your fugue state, you said the word monarchy. <laughs> yeah. And this brings up the other important kind of critique, like the the line of flight, to put it in Deleuzian terms, that this novel opens up, which mm-hmm. is. a a critique of monarchism in non-human hierarchical systems because the crabs are not autonomous. The crabs do not operate on instinct. The crabs are described frequently as being drilled like an army under the command of King Crab. King Crab! An especially large crab with um, a fondness for amputating humans'
0: limbs um, what, what do you think about the function of monarchy? Well, well, I think what we should do first is to observe a minute of hooting and hollering for the death of King Crab, who is currently laid in state. And if you queue for 500 <laughs> hours, you'll get to see his shell. <laughs> well, so I think this is really interesting because I I have an inkling about Guy Ann Smith's politics. Um, they're not left. But Knight of the Crabs is decidedly a Republican in the British sense of the term text. It, it This book is anti-monarchist, right? the The entire book is dedicated to overthrowing this unjust crab hierarchy and defeating a a, a an, an ill-conceived monarch's horrifying raid in the Welsh countryside. Like, it's hard to miss a kind of political overtone here. And I know, I know that the, the kind of like labor politics of Wales is something that's near and dear to your heart and you have a take on this one.
1: Yeah, okay. So a couple of things here, which is like Guy and Smith's politics are like kind of what we might call, uh, uh, from what I can tell, are sort of slightly idiosyncratic, old-fashioned high Tory. So he, yeah. he's, he likes common sense chaps who get things done and who, who don't take any nonsense from those lefty liberal pinko academics. <laughs> Or those smelly hippies who need to go and get a job—you know that—that—that's the kind of politics of it, right? And it's 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 usually heteronormative, it's usually patriarchal, it loves the military as long as they're organised. Yeah. Um, and there's something incredibly important about all of that happening in the context of Wales, uh, Wales in the 70s, which actually did have an emerging nationalist movement, uh, Plaid yeah. Cymru, the 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 political party, the movement for Welsh independence. Uh, this novel is actually set in Gwynedd as well, the the ancient kingdom of Wales, uh, and the princes of Gwynedd uh, were the ones who led rebellions against England. Um, uh, this this novel is Hell actually yeah. actually set not far away from uh ap Griffith, who was beaten by uh, Edward the Edward the First, and this is why the sons sons of the uh, the eldest children of the of the current king or queen of England are called the Prince of Wales. It's because uh, the Welsh principalities were subordinated to the English crown,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's it's very telling that this is this is a novel full of like English military and English tourists in Ooh. part of Wales that was there was a hotbed for Welsh republicanism and historically, uh, uh, Welsh rebellion. There's a very famous like probably about half an hour away from where this novel is actually set. There's a very famous castle uh, at Harlech. Um, and the beach near the village that this is saying is a naturist beach. So, so, oh, my. So, so, so this kind of tells you everything about... The, the novel is
0: weirdly geographically quite accurate. Um, this is wild. But, <laughs> well, that's in, in his writing but I do horror think fiction. I do th- uh, oh, go on.
1: I do think it's interesting that, like, you know, Wales is a space that is occupied militarily, or is occupied yeah. economically.
0: Oh, definitely. So so then like like this is this is just so compelling, right? Like that, and this is the thing that kept blowing me away about this text, right? You know, you know, because like as as I come to realize our location was in Wales, you're absolutely right about both the presence of British tourism and the, the British tourism, both monarchy like like this invasive monarchy that's destroying Wales, and the fact that there are secret military bases that that are sucking up a beautiful Welsh beachside territory. It's just, this book is just fully loaded. Every single cylinder is firing here, and there's so much discussion to have. Um, And just, oh my God, what was Guyan Smith doing when he wrote this? He was just levitating the entire time. Then let us do some of that levitation ourselves, and we should probably talk about the sexual politics of Night of the Crabs. We need to talk about the only thing that Guyan Smith didn't put in this book. <laughs> um, I, I know you have, a, you have a take on this, so, so lay it out for us. So I think, I, I think there's something really interesting going on here, right? Because we've been talking about this book like it's fully loaded politically. Like, it's, like it's, trying, it's going everywhere and it's going hard. And it is in a lot of respects. But there's one thing that's really absent from the text. Right. Uh, And that's the the presence of any kind of like queer or like homosexual politic. Right. Mm -hmm. We we really don't even get much in the way like because you would expect a character like Cliff Davenport, adventurer, man's man, rugged, academic. Like you would expect him to be like, oh, put away that Nancy queerness boy. We have to fight. You you would expect that kind of attitude from him. Right. He really doesn't do a lot of that. None of the men around him really do a lot of that. You know, they're, they're, they're very misogynistic, but it never really spills over into homophobia in this. It is so incredibly silent that it makes its presence deafening. You know, we, we have this Mark Fisher Weird in the Eerie present absence of queerness inside of this book. <laughs> and. and... <laughs> Oh yeah, you never you never give us the giant crabs book or we're having fun. <laughs> so the anti monarchist absent presence of gayness in the giant crab nightmare invasion by Guyan
1: Smith.
0: <laughs> well but well here's,
1: here's the thing. Oh, go I, on, go on, go on. I actually I actually think this is connected to quite a deep seated neurosis. Okay, so like Guyan Smith is immediate comes of age immediately after the in the second world war, right? And yeah. so, there's this kind of cultural imaginary, this kind of presentation of like a certain kind of British masculinity, right? It, the, the, those clever boffins and those hard working soldiers that got the job done, which elides the contribution and actually, absolutely, of people like Alan Turing, yeah, like a vital figure in winning the war, uh, punished and hounded to death because he was gay. As, yep. and literally thousands of other men went through something similar. And so there is, there is a kind of like anxiety that runs through a lot of this stuff because you can go even further back and tie it into something like John Buchan's novels uh, or the boy's mm-hmm. own adventure stories, which yep. are so, which are supposed to kind of like in, in, induct you into this correct presentation of, of masculine identity as someone who's going to go out and solve problems and, you know, be a British imperialist. So so I, I mean you you destroyed me with that take, but I actually <laughs> I actually think there's something to that, right? There's something there's something to that, and it's uh it becomes very notable that like this model of masculine correctness, this performed masculinity, uh depends upon this
0: other which is so absent, it's kind of unavoidably there. And that's I think the really important thing about looking at and I can't believe I'm about to say this, radical left queer theory in Guyon Smith's Night of the Crabs. Um, so let, let just let that one sink deep into your subconscious for a while. But because you're absolutely right that there's a very clear and decided effort to silence this. Even if it is from a, like a Chomsky manufacturing consent kind of perspective, not intentional on Guyon Smith's part, it is nevertheless a reflection of these kind of, british masculine cultural hegemonies that smith is reflecting but even with things maximally silenced you can't get rid of them right there you know like there's still a lot of erotic descriptions of male bodies you know we we have like yeah tra- crabs thrusting their rock hard pincers in and out of men
1: yeah like, and there's you, you, you know men men pouring themselves into their tight rubber diving suits it's <laughs> it, it's all that it's all that there is, there's a final, there's a final thing that I think we should talk about, which is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, which is like, let's talk about the relationship to the earth. Let's talk about the ecology of this. Because these crabs arise out of the dark, unknown depths of the ocean, um, mm-hmm. exploring the estuaries. They start to try, basically, their pose is like an invading force. Yeah. Um, I, I really want to talk about the two possible solutions to the Great Crab War that the British army and <laughs> those terribly clever boffins come up with. Um, but what do you think about how this novel presents the the eco-Gothic of the giant crab invasion?
0: So, so this is what I think is, one of the things I think is really interesting about this, right, is, is we were talking about this at the beginning when you were ma- making your argument about the epic Homerian cycle that is Guyan Smith's crab novels. <laughs> but like one of the things that's going on here in a very gothic sense right these this invading crab army led by their leather daddy king is like it, it's linked with cycles of the moon right these crabs are lunar they only emerge during the during the light of the full moon right they're they're also literally subaquatic right right they they live at the depths of the ocean in these secret caves that no one had ever known about despite the fact that there's a, a presumably very advanced military research station nearby, right? These crabs have been hiding there the whole time. They're subterranean, they're occulted, they're secreted, and they're also imbued with all of this like dark other shadowed meaning, right? Like they're, they're a metaphor for, for this unbearable queerness that will come up and get its revenge on the pristine British tourist countryside one day. It's, it's a metaphor for the the kind of oppressed and conquered state of Wales it's a metaphor for, for all of these things. It can't quite be buried. And in that way, it becomes deeply, deeply Gothic, right? One of the richest traditions of Gothic literature is that the dead do not stay buried. You know, whatever we try to kill and hide and, and bury with shame just emerges so much more powerful later down the road once we felt that we were safe.
1: Well, the novel ends with a character saying that maybe it's better not to know right? Maybe yep. somebody goes, oh, I always wonder, what's out there? What's out there in the deep darkness of the ocean? And somebody goes, well, maybe it's better not to know. And it's like, that's such a classic gothic idea, right? Don't go into the haunted castle. It's better not to know. But there's that irresistible human drive to kind of go out into the world and to reach the very limit of of, of experience. And so what is it that gets rid of the crabs? What is it that, that beats oh king, king crab down? Um, it, it's they try, they, tr- they try everything. They try everything. There's lots of like in-depth experience, uh, uh, description of crabs like taking fire from tanks and then throwing tanks into into the ocean, which yep. is – Yeah, just, guns don't work. Just, tanks
0: don't work. Just, it's it's I'm beautiful. Sorry.
1: The sentence, crabs throwing tanks into the ocean, is just
0: literal perfection. Just Crab Rave, it's just so so good. Uh, yeah, everything cr- cr- in this cr- book is beautiful.
1: <laughs> C- cr- crab Crab Rave GIF goes here. <laughs> uh, British army continues to take massive L's from, Mass- cra- <laughs> uh, from enormous crab, from enormous crabs elves. that can that can throw throw their tanks into the sea. But what actually stops King Crab is is chemical warfare. Mm-hmm. um huge amounts of uh pesticides and and weed killer um so the the british army you know this idea of like britain as this kind of like moral good using force to make the world a better place um is like the 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 british army win by doing war crimes <laughs> like, yep and and by inflicting colossal ecological damage upon wales again so not only is this now a, la- a landscape and often an ocean, which is a, a site of of huge resource extraction, it's now polluted. It's now damaged. It's now destroyed.
0: There's there's a scene that I think is really important to this reading too, because you are absolutely correct, right? In in, in terms of because this is like this is like a you know a very hammy, very cheesy, you know, very charcuterie board monster fiction, right? Like. It's it, and what's like the the classic weapon in any of your your universal monster movies in any kind of low budget monster horror, what does the hero always have a torch, right They, they have fire on a stick that they can scare and fight the monster with, right Our, our primordial BFF for life fire is there to save the day. Um, except except for this. Because we get a scene where the, the, the crabs are rushing our heroic and masculine and brave British army. And, and a general sa- says to his troops, all right, all right boys, light the, light, the grass, light the grasslands ablaze. You know the, the, it'll, it'll give us safe distance from the crabs. And one of the sh- soldiers is literally like, no, that does not work. The crabs are immune to fire. <laughs> but they try it anyway. And then the next scene, the crabs just rush through the flame, unfazed, killing them all and and i think that this is really po- important in this reading too because this kind of the image of like it, because this is like a very period british masculinity right the the idea of the the conquering soldier out in the colonies using this kind of just violence to to put down quote unquote savage rebellion you know fire being this ultimate embodiment of a very noble weapon and here it doesn't work and here you have to resort to to using like chemical warfare, like, my God, this is such a twisted ending.
1: Should we, should we, should we wrap it there? But of course um, we have to go on. Um, You know, we talked about one of the most important uh, figures of like mid 20th century British horror writing. But I think we have to go on uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about somebody else, a kind of giant, a forgotten, a forgotten icon um, of the field. Um. Should we. We should talk about Garth Marenghi.
0: Don't turn your head away, you'll miss all the fun. Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost. I mean, host. Ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique welcome to the horror Vanguard uh sh- shall you shall you lead us to our doom uh
1: yes okay I can you know we haven't we
0: haven't done this before we haven't done this before um but yeah I can I can lead us in yeah I just I just don't really know how, how is the opening of the show gonna work we we I know it's gonna be amazing whatever we come up with and it's gonna redefine not only podcasting, but probably also faith as a concept, but we just I, haven't gotten there yet. I think so.
1: Honestly, what I think we should do is, I think we should we should explain very clearly to the audience what's going on, because otherwise, I don't think they'll get it, and we need to spare them the effort of having to, you know, think for themselves. We don't want that.
0: No, so we should,
1: no. We should explain that um, what we're going to do is. Um, Transform their understanding uh, of maybe the most underappreciated figure in contemporary—not even just British writing, but in contemporary words everywhere. Um, oh, easily, easily. So, hello, everybody. I, I'm, I'm John, the lyric guy, um, writer, visionary, and now podcaster. Uh, I'm joined. I'm joined by my
0: co-ghost, one could say, Ash. How are you doing? Doing, doing quite well. I, I too am a writer, a theoretician, and I, I like to I like to think of myself as as something of a of a word weaver. I'm here to enchant you with my hypnotic net of prose and and theoretical poetry. i um, I think that's a very straightforward way of putting uh, what you do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Humble, too. It's very humble, as I tend to be. So, welcome to uh,
1: this new thing. A new podcast dedicated to the literary and creative work of of the infamous, underappreciated icon, Garth Marenghi. Obviously, we can't cover everything... Of that Marengue has put out into the world. But we can start with um, the number one show in 1980s Peru that was sadly never really screened <laughs> properly here in the UK. And to introduce it, I'm delighted to hand over to my host, co-ghost, as he explains what Dark Place was really all
0: about. Kyle screamed in terror. There's something wrong with that fish, he whispered. Indeed, there was something wrong. Wrong. So wrong it was inhuman. The fish was inhuman. (coughs) Kyle died immediately. Immediately after having his hands, face, and (coughs) organs brutally eaten by said fish, which was right after he spoke the previous line about the fish in question. Greetings, traveler. I'm Ashley Darrow, writer, world renowned podcaster. Muncie, Indiana's 2003 pipe-smoking champion, writer, and horror celebrity. You just heard an excerpt from my unreleased best-selling book, The Inhuman Fish Sorority Girl Panty Raid Destroys Greater Toronto Area. What you're about to witness with your ears is easily the most important contribution to horror cinema, and quite definitely the most important influence on the trajectory of human events since the First Council of Nicaea. Everyone, up to and including ourselves, has been saying this. We originally recorded Horror Vanguard for the BBC, but, like all cowards, they refused to pay us to be correct about horror cinema. Now, in their moment of need, they come crawling back like a zombie who could not walk for reasons I explain in my forthcoming best-selling horror novel, The Zombie Who Could Not Walk. Luckily, the original tapes for Horror Vanguard, the Ashley Darrow Horror Celebrity Podcast and Association, which on Lycrika, were recently discovered in my hope chest where they had been for the last 13 years. Sit back and listen, but also stand at attention for what you're about to hear with your heart, but mostly with your ears. Be ready for terror when you encounter... The Horror Vanguard. And then I feel
1: like we should have like... You know, maybe like lightning or thunder sound effects. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> just... Just... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of your forthcoming book, The Zombie That Couldn't Walk, and was also a metaphor.
0: Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that one. I've, I've already, I already know that this one's going to be another bestseller, even though I haven't released any of my books yet. Um,
1: (laughs) we are, we are, we are committing to this bit. We are committing to this bit.
0: We're too deep in now. We can never go
1: back. We can uh, it's fine. I apologize
0: to my friends' family and and everyone else for the fact that I'll never be able to stop pretending to be Garth Marenghi.
1: Um we, this is I don't this is going to this will either be really fun or people are going to hate us by the end of it. And I'm, <laughs> and to be honest, I'm excited to find out which one it's going to be. So, let us let us drive down the anonymous gray corridor, turn on the fog machine, and enter <laughs> The formalism zone, 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 zone.
0: Should really make music for that one
1: day. Uh you, you know, we don't we don't need to let people see see how the sausage is made. You know, we don't need we got to keep some podcasting <laughs> secrets. Let us talk about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place then. Where would you like to begin with? Honestly, the the landmark work of television of of literally any
0: time. Yeah, li- ever. Ever. I mean I can't think of another serialized piece of human literature that's as culturally important as this in including Karl Marx's capital volumes and the Bible.
1: Uh, I, I, there is there is rumor of a lost fourth volume of Das Kapital, which would it, it would just be the second season of Garth Marenghi's Dark place
0: <laughs> That is absolutely true. Oh man. So the one a place I would like to start is is kind of the shape of this parodic look at like the hospital soap opera and the melodrama. Mm -hmm. So so one thing one thing that really stood out to me, well, I watched this for the first time at your request and I did not stop laughing for the full like two hours and some change that every episode runs for. Like laughing, laughing so hard continuously that I could not take notes, which is a first for me.
1: But I I can't imagine uh, that Doctor Rick Douglas, MD, failed to make an impression upon you.
0: <laughs> every character, and this is just the best thing I've ever seen. And I'd like to make I'd like to make a point that might be contentious, but nothing happens in Dark Place Hospital that couldn't happen on an episode of acclaimed soap opera ER.
1: Um. That's a very interesting use of the word, nothing that couldn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Strategic, strategic. Yes, everything that happens in Dark Place, um, from the haunting and terrifying Scotch mist to the fact that attractive women can slowly turn into broccoli, um, all of that could have happened on ER (laughs) and... I think I speak for all of us when I say that ER would have been infinitely better had they happened on ER.
0: It would have been a watchable show. The same is true for General Hospital, right? General Hospital had some pretty ludicrous conceits in there. Dr. House MD is another one. And and it's that it's that kind of restraint in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place that I think makes Garth Marenghi such a beautiful man and writer. <laughs> I mean,
1: I think it's important to ha- to point out that Dark Place never had something as
0: cliche as it turns out it was lupus, and <laughs> it's never sick sarcoidosis, John. It's never.
1: And House MD did that at least twice. <laughs> so.
0: And there, are, there are there are multiple occasions where 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 Doctor Doctor Grumpy House MD is like I need to take a bunch of hallucinogens in the closet right now and never once does a mysterious bagpipe attack him. So give that show a D minus. Uh house doesn't even rap? No, no not not a single rap. Um, not not a one. No talking cats. Got to have minimum one talking cat. Uh and very few people explode. So on
1: every, on every score, on every, on, on every conceivable metric, Dark Place is a, is an infinitely superior show. But there is this, um, there is this kind of like critical idea about Dark Place that it is somehow deliberately quote unquote bad. Um, and I, I, I want to know, what do you think about this idea of making something that is deliberately bad?
0: With, this is what I was getting at when comparing it with, like, the hallmarks of hospital-based melodrama, right? General Hospital, ER, House. It is not this is not—this isn't, I, I would say, like, doing, doing anything that is totally inconceivable within the limitations of the genre that it's trying to satirize, right? Like, it, it's just doing them in different directions. It's just being weirder about how these things manifest. You know, put in using horror as a way to to kind of round those edges out. And I think that it, it, like like the low production value, the weird aesthetic choices, they they all play into this. It comes off not as attempting to be intentionally bad like, you know, like a lot a lot of the um sci-fi shark movies, Sharknado, Clown Shark, Shark Shark, like they're all trying to fit into that intentional bad and that's a very difficult space to be in i think garth Marenghi's dark place is one intentionally prophetic in in a level of the tradition of ancient mystics but i i would also say that it's it's just it's just like there's an energy to this that's not bad but it's just like watching a bunch of people fuck around and that's incredibly wonderful It's formalistic slapstick in a way. It reminds me a lot of 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 like Airplane and uh what is it like that that Mitchell and Webb show and like uh, I completely agree.
1: There's a there's a lot that I really love about this. And I love like dropping dropping the bit for a second. What I really love is the deliberate self-awareness of the lo fi aesthetic. My some of my favorite things in this are the editing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the choice of camera cuts. Yep. Um, that and also the quote unquote bad acting. I think to do bad bad to do deliberate bad acting requires really good acting. Uh, and um, Richard uh, uh, Richard Ayewari's amazing moment of putting down the phone and then saying goodbye to the person that he was talking to <laughs> makes me laugh yes. every single time I see it. Uh, my other, yes. fa- like him on the phone is just the funniest thing in the, my other favorite moment is, get me Dr. Rick Daglas MD, immediately there's a beat, yes I'll hold yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful
0: the, 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 the comedic timing in this one is so, so on point, everything, everything fires, everything delivers there's not like a missed gag in the entire show which is why it's interesting
1: when people say oh it's deliberately bad and it's like actually yes it is deliberate but it's deliberately taking on the appearance of being what we think bad looks like Mm -hmm. and it's like if those camera cuts weren't as good if those like pauses or those overreactions weren't quite as like pitch perfect this show would not be as funny
0: no, no, not at all. And this is what I was getting at with my like formalistic slapstick comment. Like the show is doing boobery, but boobery for cinematography. And and there's there's something that's just like honestly a little beautiful about that. And it fits into kind of these slapstick traditions, you know, Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, Naked Gun. Like like it slots into that world. You could see the lineage of Monty Python in this. And it's such it's such a wonderful iteration. On a lot of these con- uh, like contexts in terms of comedy and cinema,
1: and one of my favorite moments is where it deliberately it deliberately cuts against how so much of contemporary horror gets interpreted now.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: the in the third episode with Douglas's honestly quite beautiful backstory about his missing child, who is also for some reason part grasshopper. Um, <laughs> there, there's a moment where a man is impregnated. By a gigantic sentient eyeball. Yep. Uh, as happens. As happens. But what they, we cut away and are told that we don't know how that happens, and we will never find out. And <laughs> yes. in, in, in an era when like mainstream horror is obsessed with like eliminating plot holes, and where film criticism is like, "Ding, plot hole! Why didn't they do?" It's so nice to have mm-hmm. to have a show which just goes, "Stop it! Stop it! You're never going to find out." Uh, we're aware this is ridiculous but you'll i'm never going to give you the answer and you have to deal
0: with that and i love i love that throughout the entirety of this because even when things are explained in the context of garth merengue's dark place the the explanation kind of offers you no information we know why the scotch mist descends on dark place hospital but that doesn't tell us why the scotch mist is there And like the show is flying in the face of the modern cinematic sensibility. You're right, where everything has to fit into this like incredibly precise sense of like empirical cinema. Everything is so measured and calculated to the extreme, and this is very freewheeling. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think we should. There's one final thing I think
1: we should talk about, uh, mm-hmm. which is the yeah. lit, the literary legacy of. The, the real, the man behind Guy N. Smith and so many other pseudonyms, Garth Marenghi. Um, my, my, and I, I just wanted to bring up my favorite detail in Garth Marenghi's literary style is just explaining what words mean. Because I really
0: love it when a horror writer teaches me new vocabulary. And <laughs> I, I think that the, the, there's this kind of like, hyper literalism to the garth Marenghi style that i think is like it's just so it's just so wonderfully refreshing it creates this great like comedy thrives on a space of tension just in the way that horror does right like a bad haunted house will telegraph its scares thereby thereby rendering all of them like castrated in a deeply freudian sense the same is true about comedy you need to have that Tension. You need to be unaware of when the punchline will be delivered. And and this Garth Marenghi dark place style is just perfect for that.
1: I guess I guess this brings up a really important question, which is like what happened to the pulp horror writer? Like what happened to them as a figure? Like, cause again, dropping the bit, dropping the bit for a second. Like this is a this is like a, a kind of very loving homage like send up of horror of like the 80s and i'm like did did the did the economics of horror just kind of collapse you know is that why is that why this kind of pulp horror author has just sort of disappeared
0: you know i i, I would say on in one sense literally yes right because how, you know like how did the the pulps get, get their name from like a lot of the the low quality books that they were printed on right like very, very low quality, very disposable, very quickly made, you know, like, quote, unquote, for the masses. And the the publishing apparatus kind of no longer supports that. It's a lot harder to become a career writer, whether you're writing fiction or you're attempting to write, be a columnist or write literally anything else. But I think in another sense. the 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 tradition is alive and well it's just changed shape entirely yeah it's just
1: now it's now all online
0: yeah it's all digital and i think the the space for the kind of quickly churned out pulp stuff has gotten really limited because if you're trying to kind of build this digital audience off of a patreon or supporters or get published from these smaller like presses and work your way up to getting an actual like a, a real paying book deal uh there's not as much room for, like, Bikini Babe Crap Revenge 5. You know, like, you have to be going a lot harder than that now. Which is a loss for humanity, I must say.
1: Um, I, guess, I guess I should bring this up, though. Um, my my favourite thing about this, one of my favourite things about the show is um, Gus Marengue, of course, developed all of the melodies that the music uses. Um, We're informed in the show's credits that the music is based on melodies originally whistled by Garth Marenghi, which is is just an amazing moment. Uh, But can we take a moment just to appreciate um, Matt uh, Berry, Sanchez, who gets the incredible musical number One Track Lover in the final episode? Uh, What do you think about it?
0: That was one of the most beautiful moments of the show. Like like the song is legitimately a banger. Yeah, even the song outside is a, of the context the the song of the
1: show is a bop. The song uh, needs to be at least 5 minutes. Um mm-hmm. I need I need Richard Ayoade to drop a mixtape cuz dude can rap. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah,
0: that stuff is great. That stuff is great.
1: But what it's- I love about it, what I love about it, is like the show deliberately draws on not only all the different variations of horror because you have like the the ape movie, you have the human transit, you have the zombie mm. film, you have the ghost, but it like deliberately kind of draws off every other like late eighties, early nineties pulp genre. Yeah. Um. So you have like the the song sequence takes place in like a nineties lounge bar, and it's just yep. just just perfect in every single way
0: and, and the the, mu- the music really like rounds rounds this out too and i think it like it, it showcases like the sheer level of craft that we're kind of dealing with this because you didn't need that the show would have been amazing without that one track lover sequence but with that in here like it's just kind of it's more proof to the concept of like you do not know where dark place is going to go when you're watching it Every, every direction is, is is almost completely detached from what happened before it it's 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 almost like surrealist humor in a way well I
1: suppose we should bring up um, we should bring up perhaps the
0: the most problematic uh, aspects of the show something that maybe really has got to face it head-on yeah we, we're it, a horror vanguard we don't flinch
1: it's it hasn't aged well um, it's you know. We're gonna to have to talk about Dark Places virulent anti-Scottish bigotry. <laughs> but,
0: but I've I been do to this. Glasgow during the day and it was fine. It's, it's quite nice. It is quite <laughs> nice there. <though>. Um, <laughs> we we are gonna have to
1: accept the fact that that episode of Dark Place is also a horror vanguard call out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. Beca- because it's. Um, it is horror deliberately drawing attention to people who are desperately looking to horror as a metaphor for explaining contemporary societal ills, which mm. is something this entire show is based around doing. P- pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: wh- what do you think about that episode? So I, I, I loved that episode on on so many levels, and and partly because it like it it winds up being weirdly successful uh, about something you you don't expect. And it takes the format of like, and I, and I hate to evoke this kind of reference, but like Joss Whedon uh, would often talk about Buffy having a quote unquote, or never having quote unquote, the very special episode, right? Like, like the episode where, it, it, you know, all the characters at the end turn to the camera and they face it and they go like, like uh, uh, listening to Marilyn Manson is a serious issue, gripping our nation's youth we need to, et cetera, and so forth. Please make a donation, you know, like like a lot of televisual programming does. And and the Scotch Mist is such a wonderful call out to that, to to that kind of like liberal glad handing. That that is the very special episode, right, where where the show attempts to like take t- take on a much more serious candor than it can lift, and like attempt to have something to say, but ultimately like say less than half of its other episodes and like, oh, so good.
1: I mean, we should effectively point out that there's very little that we can say about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place that Garth Marenghi's Dark Place doesn't say itself about itself within the context of each episode. Mm -hmm. Yep, true. Um, (laughs) Which means that perhaps this episode might be a little bit shorter. Um, But I know there's a final point that you wanted to make sure that we, we, we...
0: brought up speaking of a very special episode listeners there's a cause that's near and dear to you the ghosts of your show and we need your help for years decades even the hard-working people of the nhs have not owned any firearms with your help and a quick donation we can ensure that every nurse secretary and doctor at least has a six shooter please make a donation today
1: uh, yes, this is a show that believes not only in the socialist principles of the NHS, but those NHS doctors <laughs> um, need serious weaponry because they may have to deal with hordes of the undead.
0: <laughs> and like, I love I love that formulation, too, because this fits into the character of the pulp writer. Right. Because they're 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 always like, you know, we were just talking about Guyon Smith. They're they're always masculine to, to almost a parodic level. And what and what could be more parodically masculine than bringing the, like, energy of the, the or I should say the ideology of the American Western to the NHS?
1: Yes, because doctors can heal you, but they can also put you in the ground. <laughs> I also love that anytime there are guns involved, it always goes on for so long. <laughs>
0: Right, and and like there's another like formal thing that I really love about this show, and it's like in cinema we have the 180 rule, right? And that's kind of you always imagine your actors as being on a physical stage, like they would be for for a play, mm-hmm. and yeah. never never crossing the line that separates the stage from the audience, because then you'd yes. have to spin the camera around, which would change the kind of left right relationship on everything and on for everyone and everything in screen. And and especially during the shootout scenes, they just completely disregard that. So it looks like they're all just kind of shooting at each other. It's, it's just so great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is
1: what this is what um, Dark Place really. You know, it's a show that's aware that horror has this reputation of being preachy, but it's it is a show that teaches you things, right? It teaches you that actually Glasgow can be quite a nice place, um,
0: and that doctors. <laughs> Probably need shotguns. <laughs> I mean, especially, especially. I, I think, like, even that, like, it's so, it's so, like, silly and over the top. But it's also like really intriguing and provocative on on a level, right? Like, since this show has been made year after year, the NHS is just continually gutted and sold to American companies. You know, like, like this is a parodic Americanizing of the NHS, while a much more literal and dangerous one is happening, like. The, the the show the show is just like so it's it, it it has it has the razor sharp precision of a surgeon's scalpel in the hands of a clown. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> uh,
1: any any final thoughts? Well, I mean, what what else can we add? What else can we add to the work and life of Garth Marenghi, a man who has written more books than he's read, um, <laughs> and and directed really a, a, a seminal piece of television. Any any final thoughts?
0: Well, now, now, that, now that Queen Elizabeth has passed on, uh, I think it's appropriate for the people of England to recognize that Garth Marenghi should be on the money now. I, I think that, that that's entirely appropriate and 100% the direction to take. It, it, you know, the nation's spiritual leader. It only makes sense.
1: And if you have never, um, you've never seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place.
0: You really um, need to.
1: You really need to, and you, you should to. absolutely check out some of his work published under his pseudonym of Guy N. Smith.
0: <laughs> I can't stress this enough. I had never heard of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place until like maybe a month ago when you and I started talking about it. I finally watched it last week, and I just, I literally, I've never laughed. I haven't laughed so hard in years like years it was it was like this ecstatic experience i watched this and then the next day i watched the gospel according to saint matthew and i don't think my spirit has recovered from that experience <laughs> <laughs> thanks for tuning in creeps and comrades and remember stay, stay spooky